You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. What a day, my friends, what a day. Shalom Aleichem, peace be unto you. As we celebrate this amazing historical deliverance, which is just one of many miraculous deliverances from the brink of destruction, the Jewish people continue to be today under serious threat. And interestingly, this modern-day threat to the majority of where our Jewish people live today, Israel, comes from the same location as the threat that we will read about this morning from the book of Esther. How many of you know that Jewish history has a weird way of repeating itself? At a time when our Jewish people worldwide are faced with renewed fears of anti-Semitism, Purim should speak to us loud and clear. You know, a few years ago, I was anguishing in disbelief as our House of Representatives could not pass a a resolution to simply condemn anti-Semitism in response to a lone, single anti-Semite agitator who seemed to have so many weak-kneed House and Senate members not willing to come against her. Democrat Representative Elon Omar from Minnesota. Even Jewish congressional members didn't come out against her. My friends, there are still the Hamans of the world... There are still the Hamans of the world seeking the destruction of God's people. Think about it. One Jewish, our Jewish people were brought to the brink of annihilation because of the actions of one anti-Semitic agitator who succeeded in changing the law, thus putting us in peril. If we were to look at Purim actually through the lens of modern day enemies today of our Jewish people, we could highlight just a few male and female Haman prototypes in our century. Such people as Turkish President Type Erdogan, who publicly stated this, quote, Jews in Israel kick people when they lie on the floor. Dr. Laura Kalab, a female Muslim doctor in Ohio, a self-proclaimed member of the anti-Israel BDS movement, tweeted that, quote, Jews are dogs, and I am brutally unsympathetic about the Holocaust. I wish Allah would kill the Jews. The Women's March co-president Tamika Mallory in a February 2018 speech said this, quote, Jews were responsible for all this filth and degenerate behavior that Hollywood is putting out, turning men into women and women into men. Louis Farrakhan, by God's grace, she said, has pulled the cover off of the satanic Jew, and I'm here to say your time is up, your world is through. As these modern-day Hamans rise up, so likewise are the modern-day Esthers and Mordecais rising up today through various organizations Yet that is the very point of the holy day of Purim. It is the same God who remembers his covenant and will complete his promise of Israel's ultimate redemption. Now we learn from the book of Daniel that there is a battle in the heavenlies, right? Between good angels and bad angels. 
In Daniel's day, the angel of the Lord and Michael, a leading angel whose job is to protect Israel, are fighting against two leading bad angels, one called the Prince of Persia, one called the Prince of Greece. And I believe that the bad angel of Persia is the demonic prince leading Islamic extremism in the world today. And interestingly enough, one of the key geographic centers of this spirit is the regime of the Ayatollahs in modern-day Persia. The Prince of Greece seems to represent Western atheistic humanism. And one of the centers of its powers in the United Nations. My friends, it is more than a coincidence that these two powers, Islamic extremism and the UN, have concentrated their efforts in condemning Israel. We are facing the same spiritual battle today that Daniel faced. In fact, the angel of the Lord explicitly told Daniel that the fullness of, the, of this battle was going to take place in the end times. Daniel was not here, but Michael, the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece, and all the other angels, both good and bad, they're still here. The battle is still the same battle, my friends. Today, we again look at the historical account of Purim, recognizing it's just, again, one of many of Hasatan's attempts to destroy our people, to destroy God's plan of redemption. You see, if Haman had succeeded, there may have never been a Jewish Messiah because there would have been no Jewish people for the Messiah to come from. Did you know that the Nazis actually banned Purim observances? Adolf Hitler on January 31st, 1944 said, if the Nazis went down to defeat the Jews would celebrate a second triumphal Purim. How right he was, my friends. On October 16, 1946, 10 Nazis were hung in Nuremberg like the 10 sons of Haman. One of them was Julius Stryker, who as he was hung said, Purim, 1946. And so the festival of Purim is actually a time of gladness and rejoicing and feasting in the victory and triumph of the God of Israel. And so since Purim is meant to be a merry occasion, we're actually encouraged in the synagogue to be boisterous when attending readings of the book of Esther. Children and adults are supposed to cheer when Mordecai's name is mentioned and drown out Haman's name with groggers. As we boo him, as we hiss, as we stomp our feet in accordance with the Torah command to blot out the memory of Amalek of which Haman was a descendant. Today, my friends, the world likewise is beginning to understand it is so dangerous to remain silent in the face of someone who seeks to destroy the Jewish people. The Jewish people are called to remember and celebrate this feast under instructions from Mordecai throughout every generation. In fact, chapter 9 verse 27 states that anyone who joined the Jewish people was to observe this prescribed time as well. And considering that the book of Esther ends with the Gentiles in Persia celebrating the victory as they joined themselves to the Jewish people, is it not so appropriate, my friends, that both Jew and Gentile should join together for the celebration in Messianic synagogues throughout the planet? Purim, after all, is a biblical feast. It's not just a national feast like Hanukkah. 
Pur, it's an interesting word. It's an Assyrian word. Puru, meaning a pebble or a small stone that was used for casting lots. Haman tried to choose the day that our Jewish people would be destroyed. The 13th day of the month of Adar. By casting Purim or lots. A lot, by the way, is a quadrangular die with the numbers 1, 2, 5, and 6 on it. But the Bible says one can cast lots into one's lap. But the decision comes from the Lord. And so as we read Megillah Esther today, as we read the scroll of Esther, following a time of praise and worship led by our team, we're going to see that it's a story of split-second timing and instant obedience. If you've ever wondered how involved God really is today in your life, in the circumstances, in the situations of your life, we just need to examine the book of Esther. The question this morning is, could similar events as described in the book of Esther happen again? And I believe we're seeing these events beginning to repeat themselves today. How many of you brought your swords this morning, your Bibles this morning? We're going to go fast and furious. It's going to be loud because we're going to mention some names that traditionally it gets a little boisterous. So we're going to have a special guest speaker as well. But time doesn't allow me this morning to actually get an extended historical context to you from the book of Esther. But you might recall again that in the book of Daniel, we'll do it a little bit later, that the Persians came on the biblical scene of history around 539 or so BCE in fulfillment of the prophetic handwriting on the wall in Aramaic on the Babylonian palace wall spoken of in Daniel 5 with the message that was on that wall that stated, quote, God has counted up your kingdom and brought it to an end. You are weighed on the balance scale and come up short. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, the Medes were the ancestors of the modern Kurds. The Kurds are Muslims, but not Arabs. They inhabit areas of southeast Turkey, northern Iraq, western Iran today. But believe it or not, the Persian Empire was very favorable back at that time to our Jewish people. King Cyrus of Persia, you recall, told our people who were in exile, you can go back home to Israel, you can rebuild your temple, rebuild your faith, which they did the following year, Ezra chapter 1 tells us, under Zerubbabel. But not all the Jewish people went back to Persia, uh, back to Judah, after Cyrus allowed them to do so. The second chapter of Ezra tells us that only 42,000 and change went back. And so chronologically, if you operate in your spiritual life that way and read the Bible chronologically, the account of Esther falls somewhere in between Ezra chapter 6 and 7, between the first return of Jewish exiles to Jerusalem and the second return led by Ezra. And as a result, the Persian Empire was blessed by the Lord for their benevolence to our people over 300 years until they were defeated by Alexander the Great. But unfortunately today, the ancient Persian Empire under Cyrus, who helped us rebuild the temple, or helped us rebuild our faith, has now risen in our generation to become the not-so-appeased enemy of our people. Persia, since 1935, is known as Iran. Certainly Israel today sees Iran as one of the greatest of all potential dangers in the Middle East. A little bit more on that later. But open up your Bibles this morning. Our Story takes place around the year 482 BCE, and we open up in chapter 1, verse 1. These events took place in the time of Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus, in the complete Jewish Bible. 
The Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And it was in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Shushan, the capital, in the third year of his reign, that he gave a banquet for all of his officials and courtiers. The army of Persia and Media with uh, the nobles and the provincial officials were in attendance. And he displayed the dazzling wealth of his kingdom and his great splendor for a long time, 180 days. So Ahasuerus, which was his Hebrew name, known as Persian King Xerxes I or Artaxerxes II, the Septuagint tells us to a lesser degree uh, to secular historians, he reigned from about 486 B.C. to 465 BCE, Persia here is at the height of its power, and King Xerxes tried three times to invade Greece, but he failed. And so this party may have been in place to boost morale between the first and second invasions. Look with me at verse 10 on the seventh day when the king was in high spirits from the wine. He ordered Mehuman, Bizta, Harvona, Bigta, Avagta, Zetar, and Karkas, the seven officers who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with the royal crown in order to show the people and the officials her beauty, for she was indeed a good-looking woman. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the order of the king, which he had, he had sent through his officers, and this enraged the king. His anger blazed inside of him. Now, Jewish commentators will tell you, they will list Queen Vashti as one of the four most beautiful women in history. But King Xerxes here deposed her, held a, what we could, it's not really a beauty contest at all, actually was drunk, this was ridiculous, but it lasted over three years, this contest to find her replacement. And so this Jewish maidel, this unmarried girl, Esther was chosen over many Lovely shikses, Gentile girls, thus becoming the first Jewish Persian queen. She kept her Jewish identity a secret, even taking on a pagan name. The name Esther at this time, it was a Persian name meaning star, actually is a Persian variant of Ishtar, a Babylonian fertility goddess that supposedly came to earth in a giant egg. Not exactly a bold statement affirming her Jewish identity. Yes, Mork from Ork, yes. But her Hebrew name, Hadassah, means to hide. And so in Israel, everyone dresses in costume to display the secrecy of Esther's life before she revealed her Jewishness. My friends, don't you find it extremely comforting that some of the greatest in all of scriptures struggled with their human weaknesses. I do. You see, God is not looking for perfect people to accomplish his tasks. Why? We wouldn't need the Messiah then, right? What's important, though, in the life of Esther is that she didn't stay bound by her fear. She didn't stay bound by her weaknesses. And even though she's highly assimilated here, Adonai opens up a door for Esther to be used. And so, like a theatrical drama in, the, uh, in this court tale, as it were, that's the kind of uh, way that the scripture is written here. The curtain comes down like in a drama, and then the curtain opens right back up. And we turn over to the second act, if you will, in chapter 2, and we pick it up in verse 5. There was in Shushan, the capital, a man who was a Jew whose name was Mordechai. 
Yes, the son of Yair, the son of Shim'i, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been exiled from Yerushalayim with the captives, exiled from Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried off. And he had raised Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, because she had neither father nor mother. The girl was shapely and good-looking. After her father's and mother's death, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. Verse 10, Esther did not disclose to her people, her people or family ties, because Mordecai had instructed her not to tell anyone. So Mordecai was Esther's cousin, her foster father as well, and told her, hey, don't disclose your Jewishness. There's probably some latent anti-Semitism in the air. And so right here, right here, my friends, in the book of Esther, we see the ploys of the adversary. Hasatan tries to deceive through fear to have Jewish people remain quiet about their Jewishness while at the same time bringing destruction upon their own house. There's a lot of hidden Jewish people in the world today, my friends, who are assuring the Jewish community of a spiritual holocaust of assimilation, which affects all Jewish people. It affects us too as Messianic Jews. And so the curtain goes down on, act, on the second act and opens right back up for the third act. We pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. Sometime later, King Ahasuerus began to single out Haman, the son of Hamdath of the Agagite, for advancement. Eventually, he gave him precedence over all his fellow officers. Now, Haman was a descendant of Agag, king of Amalek, right? When Israel was wandering in the wilderness, you remember, prior to settling in the promised land, the Amalekites were the first of the Canaanite nations to attack Israel after the exodus. They would not let our people pass without fighting them. And for that act of arrogance, the Amalekites were punished from God by having their name blotted out, having God declare that he was going to be at war with Amalek, Lador Vador, from one generation to another. You see, if Saul, Israel's first king, had just destroyed the city of Amalek and its descendants like God told him to do, he probably, in my opinion, wouldn't have lost his throne. And he also would have spared the future generations of Israel a whole lot of service, a lot of grief. So what happened? Samuel rebuked Saul for that act of arrogance and disobedience. And then Samuel chops Agog into pieces before the Lord. And so Haman arises here to a position of influence in the Persian Empire, which was spread out. It was a huge empire from India all the way to Ethiopia. Huge empire, 127 provinces, contained over 90% of the world's Jewish people at that time. But ironically, it's interesting here, ironically, that Mordecai is from the same tribe of Benjamin as Saul was. And so it was through Mordecai that God was going to bring final destruction to the Amalekites. So we pick it up in verse 2, chapter 3. All the king's servants at the king's gate would kneel and bow down before Haman. Because the king had so ordered. But Mordecai would neither kneel nor bow down to him. The king's servants at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why don't you obey the king's order? But after they had confronted him a number of times without his paying attention to them, they told Haman. In order to find out whether Mordecai's explanation that he was a Jew would suffice to justify his behavior. 
Haman was furious when he saw that Mordecai was not kneeling and bowing down to him. However, on learning on what people Mordecai belonged to, it seemed to him a waste to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Rather, he decided to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole of Ahasuerus' kingdom. Haman turned against all of the Jewish people because of one Jew he disliked. Haman represents anti-Semitism. He represents hatred and rebellion against the God of Israel. He's an anti-Messiah-like figure, isn't he? He's actually in this book called The Enemy of the Jews. As Jewish people, my friends, we are in the same position today as we were back then. There were individuals against us spoken of in scriptures. Just read the book of Nehemiah. Just like those today who oppose Jewish people. In every generation, there's always been an opposer. There's always been a Pharaoh. There's always been an Inquisition. There's always been a Tsar, a Hitler, an Ayatollah, a Hussein, an Ahmadinejad, a Rouhani Soleimani. Who sought or seeks to destroy the Jewish people physically, culturally, and spiritually. But we know that the Jewish people are going to survive. Because God said so. Jeremiah 31 says this. This is what the Lord says. Who gives the sun as light for the day. Who ordained the law of the moon and the stars to provide light for the night. Who stirs up the sea until its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If these laws leave my presence. What laws? Sun, moon, and stars. If these laws leave my presence, says the Lord. Then the offspring of Israel will stop being a nation in my presence forever. Look at verse 8. Then Haman said to Ahasuerus, There is a particular people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. Moreover, they don't observe the king's laws. It doesn't befit the king to tolerate them. If it please the king, have a decree written for their destruction. And I will hand over 330 tons of silver to the officials in charge of the king's affairs to deposit in the royal treasury. This is the classic line of anti-Semitism. They're aliens among us, O king. They're different. And Haman offers <laughs> 330 tons of silver or $150 million to pay for the costs of his destructive vendetta of destroying our people. Now, perhaps this was a real bounty that Haman was able to pay, or perhaps it was just a wild, exaggerated promise to show the king the fervor of his hatred against Mordecai and our Jewish people. It might also have been a portion of a bounty that he expected to gather from the Jewish people that he was planning to kill. We don't know. But nonetheless, not only was it a blind hatred, but it was a financial and political deal that unites King Ahasuerus and Haman against the Jewish people. Look at verse 13. Letters were sent by courier to all to, by courier to all the royal provinces to quote destroy, kill, and exterminate all Jews from young to old, including small children and women, on a specific day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to seize their goods as plunder. So Haman sets a fixed day on the calendar 
for the Jewish people's destruction 11 months out. My friends, this takes place nearly 2,500 years ago in Persia. And today what is taking place in modern-day Persia is no different. Is Iran an existential threat to the Jewish people today? No-brainer. Israel Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and his predecessor Benjamin Netanyahu have consistently told us that 80% of Israel's security concerns are tied to Iran. That is an incredible and sobering statement given that Israel faces a multiplicity of frightening threats from both inside and outside our borders, including suicide bombers orchestrated by radical Muslim groups. We have missile attacks by uh, terrorist organiza- uh, organizations like Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. We have an unstable border in Israel with civil war plagued Syria right on the Golan Heights. It's incredible that Israel feels that 80% of its real threat is in Iran. But my friends, nuclear deterrence will not help prevent Iran uh, to gather nuclear weapons and to pursue them. Why? Because the Iranian regime has different motives. They have religious motives. Iran and its mullahs have declared clearly that they're going to wipe Israel off the map. Why? According to their prophecy, predominantly Shiite prophecy, expectation is mounting for the third or final jihad in which the twelfth or hidden imam will be revealed to this world. And also known as the Mahdi, this Islamic Messiah is supposed to be a direct descendant of Muhammad. He will have divine status. He will be anointed by Allah to lead Islam to world domination under Sharia law. This Mahdi, according to, again, Shiite Islamic tradition, he went missing in 874 CE. He's supposed to come back and return at a time of great chaos just before the final judgment. And if you talk to ex-Muslims today who have become believers in Yeshua, they are shocked as they read the description in the New Covenant Scriptures of the anti-Messiah for the first time in their Bible, they come to the sad realization that the long-awaited Mahdi or Messiah of Islam is actually the anti-Messiah of the Bible. Iran is in a mad dash to create a deliverable nuclear weapon. No matter what you and I choose to believe about that. Iran has specifically, repeatedly vowed if Israel attacks them preemptively, it will close the Strait of Hormuz to shipping and they will attack the Saudi Arabian oil facilities at Ras Tanura and Abqaiq. This would immediately, think about this, in our, this would immediately shut down 40% of seaborne oil and some 20% of our daily consumption here in the United States of oil. And such an interruption, even for a short time, experts tell us, would push gas. You think gas prices are bad at six and seven bucks? It'd go to $20 immediately. And the curtain goes down. The curtain opens right back up. Chapter 4, let's begin verse 1. When Mordecai learned everything that had been done... He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out through the city lamenting and crying bitterly. He stopped before entering the king's gate since no one was allowed to go inside the king's gate wearing sackcloth. 
And in every province reached by the king's order and decree, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing as many lay down on sackcloth and ashes. And so we see here this prime mover, Mordecai. He realizes the severity of this situation. My friends, I believe today, Ruach Adonai, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, wants to inject the burden of the Father for His purposes among His Jewish people into our hearts for this hour. It was Mordecai's job to prepare Esther for her hour of influence before the king. Mordecai knew the enemy had a plot. He knew the enemy had a plan. And he also knew that he had to have a connection to prevent the enemy's plan from prevailing. Esther was his connection. She had been positioned by God. She had seized the right moment through prayer. She had seized the right moment through preparation and fasting. Well... God moved through Mordecai to alert Esther to her destiny, to her timing of her intercessory acts on behalf of the Jewish people. And notice that although Esther becomes queen, she loved Mordecai so much that she's willing to die for him. She's willing to die for his people, her people, her Jewish people. Who is Mordecai symbolically? Well, we'll see that in a second. But look down with me in verse 13 of chapter 4. Upon being told what Esther had said, Mordecai asked them to give Esther this answer. Do not suppose that merely because you happen to be in the royal palace that you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you fail to speak up now, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from a different direction. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows whether you didn't come into your royal position precisely for such a time as this. Esther had them return this answer to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews to be found in Shushan, one of the four capitals in Persia. Have them fast for me, neither eating and drink nor drinking for three days. Night and day also I and the girls attending me will fast the same way. Then I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So we see here Esther's response was to recognize the responsibility that God had placed before her and to respond, not in her own strength, but in his strength, using his weapons of warfare, not hers, spiritual weapons of warfare. Today, you and I are faced with a similar challenge, my friends. Soon, our very existence is going to be threatened as Jews, as believers in Yeshua, as a nation, as a Western civilization, like Esther, we will have to choose. How are we going to respond? We can, well, we can respond in fear. We can choose to protect ourselves. We can deny, you know, these things are happening. Stay ignorant of the signs of the times happening all around. We can become passive. We can believe the lie that there's nothing we can do to make an impact except just hide out in a bunker, wait for Yeshua to return. Or we can do something different. We can begin to start wielding these spiritual weapons of warfare that Adonai has given to us, but that the enemy does not want us to have. What are these weapons? Prayer, fasting, blessing others, giving, praise, worship, thanking the Lord in advance, declaring the word of God, taking our thoughts and our emotions and our words captive as well. And so right here we see Mordecai, he is challenging Esther. He saw that this 
coincidence of her being the Jewish queen could help. And despite her fear, Esther becomes a woman of open faith. It says here she could have been killed. The king has not put out his scepter to her, but she has a plan. What was the plan? She would invite Haman to a special banquet where she and the king would attend and then would accuse Haman of his treachery. Who knows, Esther, if you've not been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's words to Esther here, I believe, are a challenge from the Father to us, every one of us, this morning. We have come to the royal position. We have come to the kingdom of God for such a time as this. Now, these words convinced President Harry Truman to vote in favor of establishing the state of Israel in 1948. These words... Esther was persuaded by these words as well. And we should be persuaded as well. You see, my friends, our lives certainly become much more serious and valuable when we consider that God has placed us into situations and in positions, not for our purposes or our agenda or make us feel good, but for his purposes in his times, not our own. Maybe we're mindful of why we're here and of what our lives can accomplish when we live them to the fullness. My friends, we don't, in my opinion, truly see God's will for our lives until we do exactly what Esther did. We take that faith step. All right, we're turning third base. Go with me back to Esther chapter 5. Thank you so much, Amy. We pick it up in verse 9. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he neither rose nor moved for him, Haman was infuriated with Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, where he summoned and brought his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and everything connected with how the king had promoted him and given him precedence over the other officials and servants of the king. Indeed, Haman added, Esther the queen let nobody into the banquet with the king that she had prepared except myself, and tomorrow too I am invited by her together. With the king. Yet none of this does me any good at all as long as I keep seeing Mordecai the Jew remaining seated at the king's gate. At this, Zelish's wife and all of his friends said to him, Have a gallows 75 feet high constructed, and in the morning speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on it. Then go in and enjoy yourself with the king at his banquet. Haman liked the idea, so he had a gallows made. Haman couldn't even wait. For the 13th day of the month of Adar to have the Jewish people killed as was already decreed. He couldn't even wait. But that night, the night before Mordecai was to die, my friends, the king had insomnia. How many of you have ever dealt with insomnia? It might be the Lord. How many of you think this insomnia was a coincidence? No, the king couldn't sleep. So what does he do? He opens the record books and it was told of Mordecai, who had a great position, by the way, in the king's court, saving his life from an assassination attempt that the king had forgotten about. My friends, God did not forget Mordecai. We read verse 3, chapter 6. 
The king asked what honor or distinction was conferred on Mordecai for this. The king's servants answered, nothing was done for him. The king then asked, who's at in the courtyard? For Haman had come into the outer courtyard of the king's palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, it's Haman standing there in the courtyard. The king said, have him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, what should be done for a man that the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, ah, what would the king want to honor? Whom would the king want to honor more than me? So Haman answered the king, for a man the king wants to honor, have royal robes brought, which the king himself wears, and the horse that the king himself rides with a royal crown on his head. The robes and the horse should be handed over to one of the king's most respected officials. And they should put on the robes on the man the king wants to honor. Lead him on horseback through the streets of the city, proclaiming ahead of him, this is what is done for whom the king desires to honor. The king said to Haman, hurry and take the robes and take the horse as you've said and do this for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Don't leave out anything that you have mentioned. <laughs> My friends, the king's heart in God's hand is like streams of water. He directs it whithersoever he wills. King Ahasuerus had a change of heart toward destroying our people. And the change of heart, this was huge. Why? For the king, you recall, had originally allowed Haman's request. Why? His treasury is going to be the recipient of $100 million. But Haman made the final mistake here of pleading before Queen Esther. He did it in such a way that his actions, by the way, were badly misinterpreted. We pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. The king again said to Esther at the wine banquet, whatever you request, Queen Esther, you'll be granted it. Whether, whatever you want, up to half your kingdom, it will be done. And Esther the queen answered, if I've won your favor, O king, if it pleases the king, then what I ask to be given me is my own life and the lives of my people. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, and exterminated. If we had only been sold as men and women slaves, I would have remained quiet. Since then, our trouble would have been not been worth the damage it would have caused the king to alter the situation. King Ahasuerus asked Esther the queen, who is he? Where is the man who dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, a ruthless enemy. It's this wicked Haman. Haman stood aghast terrify before the king and the queen and in a rage the king got up from the wine banquet went out to the palace garden but Haman remained there pleading with Esther the queen to spare his life for he could see that the king had decided to do him in <laughs> Haman had just fallen on the couch wrong <laughs> where Esther was when the king returned from the palace garden to the wine banquet and he shouted is this even going to rape the queen here in the palace is he even going to do this before my very eyes and the moment these words left the king's mouth they covered Haman's face. And Harvona, one of the king's attendants, said, Look, the gallows 70 feet high that Haman had made for Mordecai, who spoke only good for the king, is standing at Haman's house. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. My friends, the price that Haman paid seemed so appropriate for the evil he sought to bring upon our Jewish people. But the act, however, that sealed his fate was actually an innocent act. 
Shaul warns us, Rabbi Saul does, about the appearance of evil. Which in this case, this appearance on the couch next to Esther cost him his life. You see, the wickedness that Haman devised came back, boomeranged back upon him and on his family. Solomon says it like this. The righteous is rescued from trouble. Instead, it comes on the wicked. Now, Esther and Mordecai, they still could have been discouraged. They could have been bummed. But because deliverance had not yet come after the death of Haman. But the answer is here. The answer is here. Look with me. Chapter 8, verse 5. And she said, if it pleases the king, if I've won his favor, if the matter seemed right to the king, and if I have his approval, then let an order be written rescinding the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamdath of the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews in all the Roman royal provinces. For how can I bear to see the disaster that will overcome my people? How can I endure seeing the extermination of my kinsmen? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and Mordecai the Jew, listen, I gave Esther the house of Haman. And they hanged him on the gallows because he threatened the lives of the Jews. You should issue a decree in the king's name for whatever you want concerning the Jews. Seal it with the king's signet ring because a decree written in the king's name, sealed with the king's ring, cannot be rescinded by anyone. Verse 11, the letters that the king had granted the Jews in every city, the right quote to assemble and defend their lives by destroying, killing, and exterminating any forces of any people or province that would attack them, their little ones or their women, or would try to seize their goods as plunder. The only thing, my friends, that could prevent the enactment of that law was to write a new law that would successfully negate the effects of Of the first law. The king, what did he do here? He gave permission to our people to unite for defense of their lives. And I believe the example of legally overcoming the negative effects of an existing law is a corollary to the actions that God was going to take by bringing his son Yeshua into the world. The new law was written through the life through the shed blood, through the death, and through the resurrection of Yeshua that negates the effects of the first law without changing the first law. My friends, the enemies of our Jewish people were not dissuaded from their desire to wipe us out. However, we were empowered with a new decree to defend ourselves. I believe that is the word for our generation of Jewry today. In the end, the Jewish people did have the right against the Persian forces hell-bent on their destruction. And with Adonai's help, our Jewish people miraculously prevailed. And likewise, we as Yeshua followers, our faith in the new covenant will be challenged. It will be challenged. Even though the new law has been written for our success. We will still have to resist the attacks of the aggressor, Hasatan. Victory won't always come easily, but victory is assured. And so this eloquent example of how death and destruction were averted through a new law is exactly what Adonai accomplished through Yeshua with the Brit Hadashah, the new covenant. Rounding third base, chapter 9, verse 16, quickly. 
The other Jews, those in the royal provinces, had assembled, defended their lives, and won rest from their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them, but without touching the spoil. And so we see what happens when Jewish people stand up, fight for their Jewishness. Adonai had allowed them to be threatened with total annihilation so that the entire Jewish community of Babylon, which had been assimilating, would now stand up. And it had to start with Esther. We as a Jewish people survived because we were willing to stand up for being Jewish. Think about this. Esther is part of a much larger story that runs all the way from Abraham to Yeshua. If Haman had succeeded, the Jewish people as a whole would have been destroyed. And the story of God's saving work in and through Abraham's descendants would have come to an end. Final verse, chapter 10. For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was a great man among the Jews. Popular with all of his many countrymen. He sought the good of his people and interceded for the welfare of his descendants. Notice this. Mordecai wept for his people, right? He humbled himself. He risked his own life. He triumphed over his enemies. And he was next in line to the king in power and authority. And notice here that Mordecai was accepted by his Jewish brothers and spent his days seeking the welfare of his people and speaking shalom to their seed. Likewise, the Messiah Yeshua wept over Jerusalem. He humbled himself to a shameful death. He's now seated at the right hand of Adonai, triumphant over his enemies. Yeshua, he's more and more being accepted by his Jewish brothers and sisters. And as his ambassadors today, he wants us to seek the welfare of Israel and to speak shalom through Yeshua to his Jewish seed. The salvation wrought during the time of Esther was orchestrated by the same God who always, he always turns the tables on his enemies. Haman was hung on the same gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. And the death of Yeshua was the beginning of the end for Hasatan. Quote, which none of the princes of the world knew. For had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. As we've studied this story, we put a lot of emphasis on Mordecai. We put a lot of emphasis on Esther. His obedience to speak to her, her gracious anointing to submit to the prophetic word, thereby saving Israel from Haman and the powers of Iran and Persia and media who are attempting to exterminate our people. But have you ever thought and asked yourself a question, Why was Queen Vashti at the beginning of this story so doggone unprepared to serve the king at that moment? She did not just disobey her king. She was unprepared for her kingdom. She was not willing to trust or worship under the authority of her husband, the king, although he was abusive. Queen Vashti was out of alignment with God. She was out of alignment with her husband, the king. She was out of alignment with her kingdom. And this misalignment, unfortunately, cost her everything. Stripped her of position. Stripped her of her privilege. Reminds me of a time when Israel was about to go out and fight. Judah was about to go out and fight. And Jehoshaphat was the king at that time. And 
And they rose early in the morning, the Judahites, and they went out into the Tekoa Desert. And as they left, Jehoshaphat stood up and said this, Listen to me, Judah. Listen to me, you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Trust in Adonai your God, and you will be safe. Trust in his prophets, and you will succeed. You see, trust establishes us. It puts us in the kingdom. We trusted Yeshua. But obedience and remaining steadfast to the words of Scripture is what causes us to prosper in that kingdom. I think one of the strongest teachings we can receive at this festival is when Mordecai is operating here in the office of prophet. He speaks a prophetic word to Esther and warning her. He warns her if she doesn't follow through in trust and obedience, deliverance, it's going to come from another source. Because God's not going to break his promise to his Jewish people. See, God desires to rescue us and save us as Jews. Not only physically, but spiritually as well. And my friends, that's going to take shkalim. It's going to take finances. It may not take 150, 330 tons of silver, but our Messiah Yeshua said, if we cannot be faithful with wealth, who will commit to our trust the true riches? As our final moments together on this Purim, I'm going to fast forward with you to the end of day's fulfillment of Purim, and that's found in the book of Revelation. I know in a number of synagogues when the rabbi says, turn with me to the book of Revelation, the congregation goes, ooh. You've been shouting and booing, so can I get one of those? Ooh. Book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, the adversary will be set free from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is countless as the sand on the seashore. And they came up over the breadth of the land and surrounded the camp of God's people in the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The adversary who had deceived them was hurled into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. And so at the end of the millennium, Adonai is going to release Hasatan from the abyss his prison to demonstrate his not being able to be reformed and, and to prove the character of those generations of men, women born during the millennium who never previously had been tempted to rebellion. Hasatan is going to then resume his former work of deceiving the nations into thinking that they're going to be better off submitting to his authority than to the Messiah Yeshua's. Hasatan is going to eventually gather innumerable soldiers from all parts of the world to fight against the Messiah Yeshua. The people who follow Satan in this exceedingly brief yet fierce rebellion by being deceived are eventually going to be, evidently be those who have not trusted Yeshua as the Messiah during this thousand year period. And even though everyone will know who Messiah Yeshua is during the millennium, not everyone is apparently going to trust him as Messiah during the millennium. Only believers are going to enter into the millennium, but everyone born during that thousand-year time is going to need to trust Yeshua and be born again as well to experience eternal salvation. Look at the phrase here, Gog and Magog. You've been hearing a lot about that in the last several weeks, but it evidently refers to the world's leaders and nations in rebellion against God. Gog, the ruler, and Magog, his land, are described back in Ezekiel 38 and 39, in which the total invasion by Gog from the uttermost northern parts to invade Israel in the last days finds fulfillment here in Revelation chapter 20, where we see a worldwide rebellion at the end of the millennium. You see, on the other hand, the battle of Armageddon takes place a thousand years earlier. That's going to be a similar ultimate world war. We may be heading toward that now, but it it will not be the final war. 
This is the final war here. The battle of Gog and Magog found in Ezekiel 38, which finds fulfillment here at the end of the millennium. My friends, there is still another battle, an even greater one. It's going to be Satan's last assault, the battle of Gog and Magog. The battle, this one, is not fought by the believers protecting Jerusalem, but it's fought by God. Quote, for fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And then in verse 10, Adonai is going to cast Hasatan, the deceiver, into the lake of fire that he previously prepared for him and his angels. My friends, the lake of fire is a place of eternal judgment, quote, day and night, forever and ever. This is the final event in the long and wicked history of the one who originated rebellion against Adonai. This will be Satan's final abode. This judgment will constitute the ultimate bruising of Satan's head, forecast prophetically in Genesis chapter 3. Haman's end came the same way. It seemed like fire came down from heaven and devoured him suddenly. And he was put on the gallows quickly. All these people in the nations are going to come up against the believers. They're going to come up against the Jewish people. They're going to especially come up against the Messiah Yeshua. And they will be devoured immediately. This is the final event in the long and wicked history of the one who originated rebellion against God. There will be no more, praise God, no more Hasatan on planet earth. <laughs> Haman represents Hasatan. Mordecai represents the Messiah who has the final victory over Hasatan. May God bless you at this season as you meditate upon the one who delivers us from our enemies. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.